0: Good morning. It's good to be back with you all. Um, I'll do a little bit more introduction in a bit, but just so you know, we're in uh, the book of Ruth, and um, I'm going to be reading the first chapter. So if you have uh, the ESV Pew Bible, that's uh, page 262. Ruth chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other... Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter's in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they, are, till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as has already been said, what a joy it is to be together with your people those of us who have been called out of darkness and put into the kingdom of your Son, and we rejoice in this holding of this together, this commonality that binds us, we rejoice that we can be together as your people and that we don't just come together for community's sake, but we come together to be enriched and brought to new life By sitting under the authority of your word and allowing it to speak into our lives, so that as we go out to different places of work and school, uh, places of rest, even, that we would have these things upon our heart, that we would have your law written on our minds, that we would speak truth, that we would be able to stand against uh, words of falsehood, and that we would remember that there is a gathering of people who love one another, who love Christ. A a small window we get each week of what eternity will look like in heaven. So, Father, bless us this day. As we open your word, would you be gracious to us in helping us to see these truths. For we pray pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I will say it's been nice having a a little bit of time off and adjusting to, to life with a new child. Um, though sleep comes and goes and mostly goes. Um, but I am grateful to the many of you who have sent notes and brought food, and um, it is joy and a joy to be a part of a community that uh, loves one another, that supports one another. Uh, and so Lindsay and I have been very grateful for that, and we're very thankful. Um, I've had some time... Um, to think about and pray about what our next steps in in study for us will be as a congregation here. First, let me say we're grateful to have Paul as our 9 a.m. music minister. It's grateful, Paul. Brother, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're with us and be under your direction as we sing as a body together. But as I thought about what what is the next thing that we'll do, what's the next thing we're going to study, what will uh, enrich us and help us together as this community of God, and I really kept coming back to this book of Ruth, and here are some reasons why. I think it's my job to convince you why uh, I've done this. Well, Ruth is in the Bible, so that was good enough for me. Here's the thing about Ruth. Ruth is a it's a great story. Ruth is an unexpected story, and it is rich in so many multifaceted ways. It gives us a good theology of work, showing us what work as worship looks like, where people today often compartmentalize their life For Saturday, Sunday, and then sort of Monday through Friday, this gives us a a totality of what worship can look like uh, through all days of the week. It also addresses the issue of of choosing a spouse, of choosing a helpmate, uh, an issue that perhaps the church in the West has uh, not done a good enough job addressing. It's also a contrast from the era in which the characters were living in the days of the judges. Now, we'll come back to that point uh, in just a few minutes. I also thought Ruth is is fantastic because the characters are displaying this covenant loyalty, this term hesed. Uh, they're, they're, They're displaying this concept to one another. Ruth is a story about Redemption from disaster. And even though God is not portrayed as the main character in this narrative to the eye and the ear that knows and loves God, you see him everywhere flooding and filling and driving this story. You think of the the days and times that we live in now with all that we see and hear and deal with on a daily basis. And this book, is a, it's a breath of fresh air. And that's what I want for us, to swim to the surface, as it were, and take in a deep breath of redemptive history, to remember how God works even in the darkest of times. So what is the background of this book of Ruth. In verse 1, we read that it is in the days when the judges ruled. So if you're looking at it on a time scale, this is sort of the 13th to the 11th century BC. We also know that it was written during the time of King David or after. Why? How do we know that? Because in chapter 4 we read that the child born to Ruth is the grandfather of David. And David is named in chapter 4. And the only way that they can write that and know that is if it has already happened. Well, what else do we know? We see that there is a famine that takes place in the land. And so the story opens on this ominous note. It's it's very Job-like. Bethlehem, which means house of bread or house of meat, has no bread. What is going to happen? And so the immediate questions that a reader of this would have is, where is God? Where is God in the midst of all this? Well, it's important that we understand a bit of what the days of the judges uh, looked like uh, so that we can better understand this story and how it fits within this time period, this narrative, this historical time. The book of Judges is filled with... The people of God going their own way, doing their own thing, facing difficulty, facing attack from outside nations and countries, and then crying out to God, and then God sends uh, rescuers of sorts. He sends these judges for the people. But after the, the rescue of the people, the people go right back to doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. Perhaps the book of Judges is best summarized by the last line in the book where we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is literally the last line you read before you turn the page and begin The book of Ruth, which then shows this line through which God's chosen king would come. And reading from our perspective and a New Testament perspective, we understand that it's also the line through which the Redeemer of all people uh, who confess and name Christ as Lord will be redeemed. But the point was that in those days, God was to be king over his people as total sovereign. But if the king's subjects choose not... They choose to go their own way and not submit themselves to the king, then there really is no king. And so we read that line from the end of Judges. And when you have people who are doing what is right in their own eyes then you have chaos and you have confusion and you have violence and you have no regard for human life. And in some ways, it's not too different from a lot of the culture we see around us today. There is no ultimate authority. The legal system is broken because people just don't obey the laws. And trust and hope are at a a minimum So that sets us up for this book of Ruth. Now, I've broken this first chapter down into three sections. We're calling death, decisions, and destiny. And we open again in verse 1. There is a man from Bethlehem in Judah who leaves Judah and sojourns into Moab. Obviously, he leaves because of the circumstances that he's facing. His family is facing. There is a famine in the land, and he wants to protect his family. But we have to remember that this is the promised land. They're living in the promised land with with the boundaries that each tribe uh, was given and that the land was apportioned for the families. So is this man, is Elimelech wrong in leaving and going to Moab? Should he have just trusted God? Well, I'll point out, his name, Elimelech, or Elimelech, means, my God is king. Remember, we said at the end of Judges that the writer says, there was no king in Israel in those days. And Elimelech's name serves as a reminder that Yahweh is king, that no, we don't have an earthly king, but we serve our God who is sovereign over all things. He is our king. So his move to Moab, a land that the Israelites would absolutely, of course, have known is not part of the promised land, seems quite suspect. In fact, the name Moab in Hebrew, or Moav means from the father. A daughter names her child from the father. Another daughter names her son Ben-Ami, meaning from a male relative. Both of these names memorialize incest. And we read about, in Genesis chapter 19, these are the descendants of Lot, who was tricked by his daughters in their effort to preserve the family line. And out of them came the Moabites and the Ammonites. So an Israelite would not have been able to say Moab or Moabite without thinking about the sordid past that these people came from. That's why we will see throughout this book Ruth is referred to as not just Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, it's Ruth the Moabite. That is a point of emphasis within this book, and it's important. It's a reminder of the broken lineage. it's a reminder of Ruth's outsiderness. And Elimelech moves his family to this region. In those days, land was of great importance. Yahweh was the God of Israel. Those were his chosen people. The Moabites worshipped Chemosh the destroyer. What a great name for a god, you know? Well, we worship Chemosh the destroyer, so, you know, good luck with your, whoever you have. But you see, everything's territorial. So, if there was a war that took place and one nation defeats the other... Then it was always interpreted as that God defeated the other God, and so he is stronger and more powerful. So Elimelech moves his family and his wife Naomi and his sons Mylon and Kilion, and then our story turns from bad to even worse. Elimelech dies, and so Naomi is left with her two sons in a foreign land that her husband has brought her to. Then her sons marry two Moabite women, something that God forbade in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the marrying of a foreigner, not because they were foreigners, but because these foreigners worship other gods, and he needed the Israelite community to remain pure, to be pure worshipers of Yahweh. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God forbids Moabites from entering even into the temple because the Moabites are the ones who were uh, attempting to curse the Israelites. If you remember the story of Balaam and Balak from Numbers chapter 31, and instead he ends up blessing the Israelites. So Naomi and her two sons and her two daughters-in-law, they live in the land for, for 10 years, and then Both sons die. Death is everywhere. The famine in the land represents death. Elimelech, there's the death of Elimelech. There's the death of Malon and Kileon. This is devastating for the women. And there is no heir born. There's not a lot of attention given to this, but readers of this would have absolutely picked up on this right away. There's no heir, there are no children, and that doesn't seem to be by choice. There's ten years. And so it sounds like it's an issue of barrenness. And so it's these first five verses are so somber. They're so sad. But then we see a sliver of hope emerge in the next verse, in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for which she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord has brought blessing back to his land and back to his people. Naomi has just lost everything. Again, very Job-like in in so many ways. And so the question now is, what will she do? She wants to go back home. She needs to go back to her community. She's still a foreigner in Moab. And so she begins to head back to Judah, where she tells her daughters-in-law to go back with their families, to go and find husbands and have children that they may live their lives But they insist on staying with Naomi. Obviously, they had bonded uh, as a family. They want to go to Judah with her. But Naomi knows that there is nothing for them in Judah. They would be better off staying with their people. Then Naomi uses this phrase. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What does she mean by that? What does that phrase mean? Often that phrase is used to describe the judgment of the Lord against the enemies of God. So does Naomi see herself as an enemy of God? What's interesting is that she doesn't say, I have had bad luck. You know, I've had great misfortune over these last few years. No, Naomi understands the sovereignty of God to some extent. She recognizes that he has allowed these things. And she tells them it is worse for her than it is for them. You are still young. You still have your whole life ahead of you. My life is essentially over as far as I see it. So Naomi is feeling helpless. She's feeling desperate. She is at rock bottom. Now, I wonder up to this point, do you notice anything being absent from this story? Do you notice anything absent from this narrative? There's an absence of God in the narrative apart from Naomi saying that the hand of God went out against me. So what is the doctrine that we're drawing out of this drama? We read about a a drama and it's important for us as Christians to be able to, to pull truths out so that we can understand What are the things that this text are teaching us about our God? I think we have to see that even though Yahweh appears absent, he is most certainly at work here. He is at work in the midst of the devastation. He is at work in the midst of the deaths. He is at work even in the decisions that are being made by each of the characters. Which brings us to the second point, the decisions. So Naomi urges the girls again to stay in Moab. And Orpah gives up and goes back home. Just as a side note, Oprah Winfrey's name at birth was Orpah. She was named after this character. Which makes no sense to me because she's not like a good character in the Bible. Uh, And people kept mispronouncing Orpah. And saying Oprah, and I'm glad that I don't have to say it anymore because I'm going to want to say Oprah every time I see it. So Orpah goes back to her family. She takes what Naomi says and goes back. But Ruth, Ruth will not go back. She clings to Naomi. And notice what Naomi says See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Why does she say that? Ruth is not only making a decision between Judah and Moab. She's not just making a decision between Naomi and her own mother. Ruth is making a decision between Yahweh and Chemosh, the territorial gods. But Ruth's love and concern for her mother-in-law is greater than her desire to remain under Chemosh in Moab her 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 conviction to the god she grew up under and lived under in the territorial concept for she says do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where I go where you go I will go and where you lodge I will lodge your people shall be my people your god my god Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That is a covenantal bond. That's a very deep covenantal bond. She's invoking curses if she is to break this bond. I think it's important here that we see a little bit of difference between some of the other stories that we talked about. Think of the difference here between Ruth's pledge... And what Lot did in leaving his own family for Sodom. Lot was so quick to leave his uncle. Ruth binds herself, herself by oath to remain with Naomi. Lot follows the attraction of his eyes. Ruth was led by loyalty and love. She cares Nothing for her status. She cares nothing for her wealth. When she says, Where I lodge, uh, where you lodge, I will lodge, that implies that she is willing to live in total poverty with Naomi, which would have been her likely case because there's no male heir, there's no uh, male provider for them at this point. She's not only committing herself to Naomi, but to Yahweh, to God Himself. Your God will be my God. Even Naomi's statement a uh, uh, blaming Yahweh for her troubles is not enough to deter Ruth. People don't typically follow uh, a person that's admitting that they're cursed and under the judgment of God. It's just not something you do. Let alone covenantally binding yourself to that person. That would, be, would sound foolish. And when she refers to the Lord in verse 17, she doesn't use a general term for God like the Almighty or, you know, there's no general term. She actually says Jehovah specifically. And so here are these two women making an absolutely dangerous trek from Moab to Bethlehem alone with no protection. During the days of the judges, when women were not respected, when they were not viewed as weaker vessels to be protected, but they're seen as objects, as we see the way that they treated women in the book of Judges, chapter 19, with the account of the Levite and the concubine, if you want further reading. And now we come to our third point, which is destiny. And so... Ruth and Naomi, they arrive in Bethlehem. It's been over 10 years since anyone has seen Naomi. But she and Ruth stir up the whole town with their arrival. And they ask, is this Naomi? Could it be after all these years? And she again tells them of her hardship and how calamity has been brought on her by God. She tells them, to not call her Naomi, which means uh, pleasant or sweet, but to call her Mara, meaning bitter, because the Almighty has dealt with me bitterly. I, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord testified against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So what do we make of all this? What will be their fate moving forward? They seem like uh, they've arrived and their expectation is just to scrape by because they're under the judgment of God. They just want to exist. But this is not what God has in store for them, as we will, of course, see over the next three weeks. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this uh, Quite ominous, dark passage in Scripture. Was God justified in, in how He handled, in the way that He dealt with Naomi? Was Naomi in the right or in the wrong through all of these events? Well, the Old Testament is pretty clear: Do what is right, and things will go well with you. Do what is wrong, and there will be consequences. But what about a situation like Job? He had done nothing egregious, but God allows for him to be tested. And Job recognizes where the testing is coming from, because Job recognizes the sovereignty of God. Naomi recognizes the sovereignty of God. Was God punishing Naomi? Well, the text doesn't say. We can, at the very least, say that she is not innocent. God has blessed Bethlehem by visiting them and bringing them food. But Naomi says that God has not been good to her. She is instead empty and she is bitter, which leaves us on a cliffhanger. Who will be able to redeem and and restore Naomi and Ruth? What will be their destiny here? What is God's character through all this? What what should we be interpreting through this? How will he respond? I think as we conclude, I want to draw attention to this line from Naomi. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I left. I went away And I was blessed before I left. Then all of it was taken away. And I did not return, but the Lord has returned me. He has returned me empty. But he nevertheless is the active agent in bringing me back. It sounds like the prodigal son. I'm not sure if Naomi sees it now, but there is absolute grace there. Even in her foolishness or Elimelech's foolishness, whoever is to be blamed, God has preserved and God has protected. And we face so many circumstances and and situations and, and obstacles in life. What is our attitude towards God through all of those things? Now, we have the benefit of knowing what happens in the story, but they do not. You know, sometimes you just almost want to shout to Naomi, hey, everything's going to be okay. But she doesn't know that. This is where trust and faith are being tested and strengthened and revealed. And another grace for Naomi is she has Ruth who is displaying a a covenant loyalty and bond that appears unbreakable. Something that Elimelech never displayed, despite the meaning of his own name. So as we think about the, the drama and as we think about the doctrines... We think about discipleship moving forward. How how do we take this drama and the doctrine that, that emerge from this text and then apply it to our own lives? Let's be asking about those moments when we don't know what God is doing, which is often. Are we placing our trust in Him? Do we believe that he is doing what he says he will do? Romans 8, working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Even when life seems bleak or dire or disastrous, or even when life seems bland and and mundane, do we see the divine in the daily when it can be difficult to see? Let us remember who rules. Let us remember who reigns. Though the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord's anointed and against one another. Because for the Christian, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this story. As we've not quite gotten to the point of redemption and the restoration that you are bringing, we can still look at the bitterness and the the tragedy and the, the, the sadness of these events. And even in our hearts, we want to cry out, stay with the Lord, stay with God. Don't be tempted to go the wrong way to these characters as we read. Our hope is that they would remain firm. The same can be said as we look out into our world and we see Christians who, when they go through great difficulty, the loss of a loved one, the loss of finances, the loss of anything that brings some sense of security that is not God himself, and we say, stay with God. Don't run to other things. We pray that this text would not be lost on us, but that we would remember that you are the one who redeems. You are the one who restores, even if it's just ultimately, because that is more than enough. So, Father, help us in these days ahead as we think on these things, as you teach us more and more truths from your word. Help us to know and better understand your character, what you've called us to. For we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.